Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It is Friday, August 12th, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese is away. This week, John Marr, PW News and digital editor, joins me from New York. He has been reporting from a federal courtroom on the Department of Justice suit to block Penguin Random House's acquisition of rival Big Five publisher Simon & Schuster. Welcome back to the program, John. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Glad to have you, John. And before we discuss the week's testimonies, I want to know for listeners that you have live tweeted from the D.C. courthouse, but not in the courtroom since the trial began nearly two weeks ago. Paint a picture of the scene for me and tell us how the Twittersphere has responded. Have you picked up many new followers? I sure have. Um, But that's the least interesting part of this. Uh, So to give you a bit of an idea, to, to paint the picture, as it were, the courtroom of Judge Florence Pan is in the E. Barrett Prettyman, 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 still not sure how to pronounce it, courthouse uh, for the Federal District Court of Washington, D.C. And there was a little annex right next to the courthouse where there was an overflow courtroom for press. So the way that uh, this all sort of worked is if you were in the judge's courtroom itself, you were unable to bring in or use any electronics. If you were in the overflow courtroom, you could have a laptop, you could have a phone, uh, anything but a recording device. So I learned fairly quickly that the best way to keep people up to date in real time was to sit in the overflow courtroom, watch on the monitor, and type as fast as my little fingers could go on my laptop, uh, which was very successful to my mind, mostly because it did keep the industry up to date very quickly on a trial that they probably all wished they could be watching on TV. It's an antitrust case. It's a big case for this business. And I think being able to communicate rapidly what was happening was as close to a live stream as possible. And and on Twitter, it, it resulted in a lot of conversation uh, with people responding to me, asking questions about, you know, can you clarify this comment or can you give us a little more context or what do you think about this? And often they would also just take some of the statements that the folks on the witness stand made and that I reported on Twitter and, and quote tweet them and with their own opinions, which helped everyone in the business learn a lot from everybody else in the book business. And it helped me learn what their perspectives were. So I found it to be a really fruitful exercise personally. We'll tell people your handle on Twitter is John H. Marr. And the tweet stream has been picked up, if you will, by Beth Ann Patrick. She'll continue doing that uh, next week. She will. And I think she's uh, at the book maven and she will be there Monday. Although my colleague Ed Nowatka will pick it up from there. I do believe he will be live tweeting, but I'm not entirely sure about that. All right, then, John. So on Monday this week, Macmillan CEO Don Weisberg testified, joining the ranks of other big five CEOs who have sat in the witness chair, including Michael Peach of Hachette Book Group and Penguin Random House Chief Marcus Dole. What did Weisberg say were his expectations if the merger went through? So unsurprisingly, considering that uh, Don Weisberg is CEO of the smallest of the big five, Macmillan, although he is not certainly the only big five CEO outside of Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster to say this. He is concerned about this 
consolidation. He is concerned about the merger going through. And he said effectively that it would be bad for, well, bad for business. Uh, I believe he said, if I'm an agent, sorry, and I quote, if I'm an agent and there's one player that's bigger than everyone else, I think that will have an impact. You'll have to change your behavior to deal with that. So he was talking specifically about the idea that the defense has sort of been hammering home, which is that the agents control all the power with regards to bidding in the business and a major consolidation between Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, that big merger would not affect the prices of advances paid by big five companies for books of $250,000 and above, which are the center of this case, uh, of the government's case. His, his idea is to push back against the defense and say, no, actually, they will still be able to have an effect on prices. This combined force of Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster will be so large that they will determine the market. So with Don Weisberg testifying, this is bad for business, of course, the PRH defense lawyers want to challenge that view, and they did. They even entered portions of his previous deposition into evidence, at least twice, trying to impeach his testimony. How did Don Weisberg respond when apparent contradictions were raised? Well, one of the things I believe you learn in uh, prep for trial, although I could be wrong about this, but I would imagine is the case, is to say less whenever possible, uh, specifically when it seems like the other party is succeeding in doing what it's trying to do. Weisberg and I believe Carp also, although he was testifying as an adverse witness for the government, not as a cooperative witness, and Weisberg was cooperating with the government. When both of them were impeached, they kind of sort of shut down and quieted it up. They did not further what they were saying, specifically because in general, you don't want to double down on something that's going to make your testimony look less credible. So I, I have a I have a dear friend who's a lawyer. And when I was down in DC, we were talking, uh, a trial lawyer, he, he worked as an ADA for a while in the Bronx, actually. And we were talking for a bit. And what he told me was, if someone is impeached enough at trial, and especially if they push back against it regularly, uh, in a way that makes it hard to believe their testimony, the judge may actually just throw out the testimony at the end of trial and say that this is not a credible witness. Um, so I would bet that Weisberg was prepped to be fairly tight-lipped when he was um, when he was impeached, and that was generally what I saw. Brian Murray, on the other hand, a little bit more feisty in that regard, but we'll get to that later. Also on Monday, John, the government called its expert witness Nicholas Hill, who specializes in antitrust issues. He took the witness stand to run through the data-driven portion of the government's case, as it has already outlined in its pretrial briefs. He sure did. And it was four hours of painstakingly dogged and thorough testimony. Um, So Hill defended the government's creation of a category composed of anticipated top-selling books. So they called them anticipated top sellers, which were given an advance of $250,000 or more against PRH's argument that it's a made-up category. It's irrelevant to the industry. So the the gist here is that the government is saying that books of $250,000 and above in advances are acquired primarily by the big five, are treated differently from their other books, and as such, 
constitute a dedicated submarket. Penguin Random House is saying, and I'm absolutely paraphrasing here and sort of just giving my own examples to clarify this. Christian books, that's a dedicated submarket. Graphic novels, that's a dedicated submarket. Books of $250,000 or more, that isn't a dedicated submarket. That's just a price point. But Hill pointed to Publishers Marketplace's deal ranking system, which does use 251000 in fact, as a cutoff, and noted that both Penguin Random House and SNS use the 250000 mark as a cutoff as well internally. Uh, he then went about explaining how a PRH merger with SNS would give the combined company such a high market share in the top selling author market that theoretically it would depress advances paid to those authors. So there has been a lot of conversation about market share. And Marcus Dola at Penguin Random House in particular was insisting in his testimony that Penguin Random House's market share had actually dropped since the Penguin and Random House merger and that acquiring SNS would simply bring it back to where it was at 2012. So the market share side of this thing has been a big debate, uh, whether market share or profits or market power which is a little bit of a looser definition. All of these things are different. Which of these matter the most? It depends on which side you're fighting for. In his cross-examination of Hill, defense attorney Randy Oppenheimer suggested that all other publishers outside the Big Five in combination amount to a publisher the size of Simon & Schuster, and they can compete for books accordingly. So what did The Economist make of that? Uh, He mostly said it was nonsense. I, I think basically what he was saying is, well, if they were one firm, if they were bidding for books with combined market power and a combined backlist and a combined income, then sure, we would be talking about a very different situation. But the idea that just because, you know, Norton and Grey Wolf and Catapult and Grove and a number of these other publishers that have been mentioned in this trial as theoretical rivals to a combined Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster, just because if you put all of them together into one publisher, they share a market share equivalent to Simon and Schuster's based on some metrics. That doesn't mean that that's how they operate as a business, and of course they don't. They're not one company. They can't rely on the same pool of money. So I think that was basically what Hill was saying. And in later testimony for the government, HarperCollins CEO Brian Murray expressed amazement at the $2.18 billion offer by PRH for SNS. Otherwise, did Murray see anything that other CEO witnesses before him had not? Well, he did give some numbers in terms of or at least some suggested at some numbers to give a bit of an idea of how HarperCollins estimated Penguin Random House's market share. And HarperCollins internally believes that Penguin Random House is three times bigger than them. That number, however, does not include sales from the HarperCollins Christian Publishing Group, nor does it include sales from the Harlequin Group. Uh, and the defense attorney, the Viacom CBS lawyer, uh, Stephen Fishbein, basically pointed that out to Murray and also said, and here I have an internal document that actually says it's two times the size because it includes those numbers. So there, there was a little bit of <laughs> discrepancy there and dispute over that. But one of the other interesting things about the $2.18 billion number in particular is that Murray basically said, you know, HarperCollins did not value Simon & Schuster at that. They simply said, we could not 
pay that kind of money for Simon and Schuster and have it make sense in our business. We, we could not justify it. And Fishbein replied effectively asking, well, you know, you're a business guy. You, you are, you come from a, a business background. I believe um, he worked at Booz Allen before this. Murray worked at Booz Allen before this, I believe. And what Fishbein basically said was, well, can't you agree that the amount one publisher might pay or one business might pay for another business might differ simply based on other factors, on the size of the acquiring business, for instance. And might Simon & Schuster have a different metric of worth to a company like Penguin Random House, uh, which effectively Murray agreed upon, although in general, Murray was pretty cagey in the way he, he responded to a lot of Fishbein's questions. KG may not be the right word. He was um, not 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 quite equivocal, but he he tried he tried to an- no equivocal is good. He tried to answer fairly fairly equivocally without without having to really directly answer the questions, which is to be honest a very very classic tried and true standard way to respond to questions on trial. <laughs> Well, we appreciate the way you've responded to our questions today, John. And you're not on trial. John Marr, Publishers Weekly News and Digital Editor. Thanks for joining me on the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Coming up on the next podcast from CCC, earlier this summer, Paris-based journalist Olivia Snage contributed to New Lines magazine, the absorbing account of how a French literary event in 2021 brought author Yambo Willogram back to life, at least in the literary sense. Her reporting reads like its own novel, with a plot that sees literary celebrity lead to rejection, all layered in themes of colonialism and racism. After Ulugwem returned to Mali from France following accusations of plagiarism, he adopted a religious lifestyle, and many believed he had quit writing. But while attending a two-day conference on Ulugwem held in the Moroccan capital of Rabat, Snage learned otherwise. A research chair for African literature and art was just created at the Royal Academy in Morocco, and Yombo Wolugwem was the subject of their first conference. So um, when I was there, I was lucky to meet experts and, and also Wolugwem's youngest son, Ombibé, who's sort of taking over his father's estate and writings. And uh, Ombibé said that his father had never stopped writing and that he worked every single day and wrote, and that there were piles of papers in the family home, but that he and his siblings hadn't gone through them yet. Yambo Wulugwem reconsidered, coming on the next CCC podcast. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to this program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening to this Velocity of Content podcast from CCC. Thank you.